This is KMTT. And today, we're continuing with the series on theological issues in uh, Judaism. This is Ezra Bick. We'll start a new topic today. Till now, we've been speaking about the original question that I asked a few weeks ago, and we explored various ramifications of the question, was where is God present in the world? Where can we find the presence of God in the world? What is the point of contact between man and God? And today's topic is basically the opposite. It won't be contradictory. If we understand it correctly, we'll understand why it's not a contradiction. My question today is, to what extent is God not in the world? How important is it to Judaism that God not be in the world? There are many, many sources for instance, in, in Medrash, specifically in Medrash, in the beginning of the Torah, Pashat Beshit, which will speak about the gap, will speak about the, the distance, the unbridgeable distance between two worlds, the upper world and the lower world, Shamayim Va'aretz. The beginning of the Torah, of course, begins that God created et ha-shamayim ve-et ha-aretz. The Medrash has a tendency to view this not as being two particular things within the world, like the North Pole and the South Pole, but it means ha-aretz is the world and shamayim is the upper world, the place of malachim, the place of God, not the place of man. But perhaps the most extreme version that I can think of, of the emphasis on denying that God is present or in contact directly with man, is a famous statement of Chazal that's quoted in the Gemara and Sukkah and elsewhere, where the Gemara says, May Olam lo yarda shechina mitachat liyut fachim. In different places, we find that Kashbohu came down to the world, so to speak. The very phrase indicates that normally he is outside of the world, but yeah, God comes into the world. And the Gemara says, not really. Lo The Shekhinah has not ascended below ten cubits. Now, the, the, the number ten cubits is not particularly high. It's like a... Uh, um, yeah, something like 60 centimeters. 50 or 60 centimeters. Um, did I get that wrong? Yeah, I got it wrong. Tent uh, Fachim, about 80 centimeters. It's half the height of a man. But that's not the point. The point is that Yud Fachim in Halacha is a Shir Makom. If something is Yud Fachim high, it's it's in the next story, so to speak. In sukkah, for instance, in the Gemara sukkah, the minimum height of a sukkah is yud fachim. Because less than ten fachim, you haven't completed the first story. If a house is ten fachim high, rather uncomfortable house, but nonetheless, you can the, the next above the roof is already the next story. By saying that God has not descended below yud fachim, the Torah is saying that God and man are not in the same. Area, they're not in the same place. 
That's why the Gemara has an opposite statement. Below Allah, nobody ever came up to within Yud Fachim of the heavens. Heavens and earth are separated, and even though sometimes they get closer and closer and closer, there's always Yud Fachim between them. Ay, it says, God came down to Hasinai. He didn't rest on the mountain, he was ten Fachim above it. Ay, it says, Moshe Allah, Moshe went up to God. Says, he came close to God, but he was still ten Fachim away. The Medrash apparently is trying to say that despite all the Psukim, which indicate the opposite, man and God have a relationship and they get close, but even under the extraordinary circumstances being described by those Psukim, the distance cannot be eliminated. It is, it is separate. And if I mention one of the Medrash, which I think this, this elucidates, an uh, extraordinary story found in the, in the Medrash Rabbah in the beginning of Breshit, quoted in the Gemara as well. There, as you know, there was a, a famous sage, Ben Zoma, who, uh, the Gemara says, he sits Nifka. He was, uh, he was mentally unstable. Something happened to him. And uh, then they mentioned a story that one time he was sitting on the steps and uh, another chacham, another sage came by and saw that he was like he was like staring at the space. He was very preoccupied. He said, what are you thinking about? What are you looking at? What do you see in your mind? He said, I see the place where the heaven comes down to earth. He said he was looking at the horizon and the horizon is the place where earth meets, meets the sky. And I saw that, yeah, the earth actually met, and the distance between them was like the skin of a garlic, what we would call an onion skin. In other words, they basically were touching, and there was the most minimum of minimum distance between them. And the Chacham then said, Adayin ben Zoma bachutz. He commented on that, ben Zoma is still outside. He's still not, not well. I think what the Medrash means is that he was denying the principle which, which I just defended. Ben Zama was saying, what are you talking about ten Tfachim? What are you talking about ten cubits? If you look somewhere, there's a certain place where you can look, you can see that even though above our heads, when we stand here, you look up, the heaven is infinitely above your head. But if you look in the distance, you see that they come together and, and they meet. Now, if you want to interpret Medrash, you could say, no, he saw that they were still separate. There was a minimum, but nonetheless existent, distinction between heaven and earth. Kiklipat Hashem. I'm assuming that it's the opposite. If the distinction is only Kiklipat Hashem, it means they're two distinct things, but they're in contact. They haven't merged. But the, the war between them, the distance between them, is the most minimum of minimum things, the thinnest of thin things, which is a, a, the peel of a garlic or peel of an onion. And that's what he saw, but the, the, the reaction of the normative sage to it, remember correctly, Zabi Yeshua, the normative sage, when he hears it, says, he's not one of us, he's not with us, he's still, he's still, there's something wrong with him. The extent to which it was important to Chazal to maintain or to combat the idea that the heavens and the earth can intermingle, that God and man can actually be in direct direct contact without anything separating them. Philosophically, 
theologically, um, this is a very, very important point, which has a lot of ramifications, and I'll mention just one. In the history of theology, not necessarily Jewish theology, but in general, there are two major ways to prove the existence of God. Traditionally, medieval theology and early modern theology uh, spent a lot of time dealing with the proofs of the existence of God, logical proofs which would demonstrate that God exists. And the proofs fall into most of them. The overwhelming majority of proofs fall into one of two categories. One is known by the medieval term the cosmological proof or a version of the cosmological proof of God. Cosmological proofs of God um, are based on not a particular phenomenon. You're not going to argue with them by saying, I don't think that the phenomenon exists. Not based because it rained yesterday or because Sinai took place 3,000 years ago. But it's based on the, 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 the basic nature, a, a, a basic feature of existence. For instance, the one which was first advanced by Aristotle and is quoted by the Rama more or less in its original form. That thing, since motion exists, since things change, specifically they change their location, there has to be a cause of that. But the cause of motion is itself something in motion. There has to be a cause of that. And the cause of that is another motion. But you can't have an a infinitely regressive uh, uh, series of causes. Therefore, there must be a first cause. The first cause is something which is which causes, but is not himself caused. Because then we'd ask what his cause was. Therefore, there has to be a first cause, and that cause we call God. Okay, that's one version of the cosmological proof. And there are other, there are other versions. The Bible himself has, has four versions in Moran in, in, in Another kind of proof is called the teleological proof. Teleological proofs are based on showing that nature bears witness to purpose. If you examine nature, you'll see that it's not random, but it shows design. There are certain specific features. Now, here's different than a cosmological proof because it's not based on nature as a whole. It's based on looking at this law, this phenomenon. Uh, for instance, a very, very famous uh, example from the, 16th, from the 17th century, you examine the human eye in, in an in intricately complicated device clearly designed to allow vision. But if it's designed to allow vision, it has to be a designer. And that designer we call God. In different generations, people were impressed by different aspects of nature. Sometimes it's biology, sometimes it's physics. The Rambam doesn't use it to prove God. He, but he mentions the idea that you go out, you look at the skies and the heavens, and you see the way everything turns, and they, they assume it was very, very ordered and mechanical, uh, and not a big mess like the Shani believes today. And, and there must have been a great deal of wisdom invested in that, and that wisdom we call God. Sometimes it's astronomy, sometimes it's biology, sometimes it's physics. The most modern version, the last few years, people looking at the basic laws of physics and trying to determine design. If there's a design, there is a designer. The theological proof is not popular in Judaism. It's used as an, not as an argument, it's used as a means for, what the Bible uses it for, to inculcate love of God. If you realize how much wisdom and design and effort was put into the world, then you will immediately be filled with awe and admiration for he who designed all this. But he doesn't use it to prove the existence of God. And it has a very slight historical footprint in, in, in Judaism. What is, it, what is the difference between the two kinds of proofs? 
I mean, the difference, the technical difference, what's the difference in the kinds of proofs? The most important difference relates to the question we asked. The cosmological proof in all of its variants is based on showing that there must exist something which, who, is totally different than everything else. In other words, everything in the world, according to the proof I cited from Aristotle, is caused. Every cause is itself caused. Every cause is an effect of another cause. Aristotle argued, therefore, there must exist one thing who will be the first cause, and it's totally different than anything else because it's not an effect of anything else. God causes everything, but nothing causes God. What is the cause of God? God is the cause of Himself. God is the reason for His own existence, but nothing else is like that. And all the other versions of cosmological, I'm not going to go into the details, they all share that aspect. That you view the world and everything in it, and it's inexplicable unless there exists something that's totally different. The teleological proof is based on the exact opposite point. Because it comes to explain a particular phenomenon. Why does the human eye exist? Why do trees have photosynthesis? And the answer is going to be, well, it must be that somebody designed it. Now, what do we know about the nature of he who is responsible for the human eye? We know he's incredibly intelligent. We know he's very, very capable. How much is very or incredible in that sentence? Well, smart enough to design a human eye. Powerful enough to actually bring it into existence. How powerful is that? Some number, some measure, smarter and more powerful than I. But not infinitely smarter or more powerful than I. The God who designed the human eye, or the God who designed everything in the world, much more brilliant than the most brilliant computer imaginable. But nonetheless, a finite numerator. He is a billion times smarter than the most brilliant person or computer that I've ever met. Very much part of the world. If your God is He who designs the world, makes things happen, then by definition, he's part of the world. This is the reason, for instance, that John Stuart Mill, philosopher of no small stature, using theological proof, solved the problem of evil by saying, he who designed this world is an incredible designer. And he made a few mistakes. Still is God. If 99% of the world works, and every now and then there's an earthquake, uh, that's pretty good. That's like in, in, uh, immensely better than anything I can imagine, and that's what we call God. He's pointed out, he did it willingly and happily, that the theological proof does not prove an infinite. It doesn't even come close to proving an infinitely wise or infinitely powerful or infinitely good God. It merely shows that there exists a God who is good enough and powerful enough and wise enough to create the world in which we live. John Stuart Mill argued that if such a person exists, and he must exist, then we should be filled with immense admiration for him and we should worship him. 
The cosmological proof, on the one hand, has less content. It doesn't show God as doing A, B, or C, or D for me. It gives God a metaphysical status, not a practical, mechanical, physical, chemical status. God is a metaphysical principle who without whose existence the world could not exist or not exist as we know it. There is a price you pay for that kind of a proof and an advantage. The price you pay is that it's difficult to conclude and therefore you should worship Him. Since the God that's been described is does not bear any particular effective relationship with you. It doesn't do things for you. It didn't give you anything. So the natural emotions which we associate with religion, gratitude, awe, uh, obedience, worship, they don't seem to follow. As has been commented many times, the Ramam says that God is the first cause. What are you supposed to do with the first cause? Why would you want to dive into the first cause? Why would you want to ask Him things? Why would you want to praise Him? It's a metaphysical principle. The advantage is, and the two things are they're the two sides of the same coin. The advantage is that, and I think this is very important to the Ramam, and it is important to Judaism, the advantage is that God is the Holy Other. God is God because He is like nothing else. Now you pay a tremendous price for it, because there's nothing else, and you can't begin to explain how He relates to the world. You can believe He relates to the world, but you have very difficulty explaining how. How something which is totally different than anything in the world, so what's the, you need a common ground to explain how, how they interact. And that's the price the Ramam willingly plays. But the advantage is that you've given God a status which explains why He should be worshipped. Because He's not ten times smarter than you. Or ten times more powerful than you. If you worship He who is a hundred times more powerful than you, you're merely being prudent. In other words, the Ramam is saving Judaism from being a Vodazara, from being idolatry. To worship a force that's part of the world is the essence of paganism. Greek gods were very powerful. I mean, they made the winds blow. To have the wind blow is more than any scientist can do today. But that's what he was. He was the god of wind. And Judaism views the god of wind as being the same as the wind. It's just another thing in the world. Much more powerful than I, but not, not good enough to be God. That's more or less the meaning of the famous Medrash Barabam Avinu, who said, I can worship the sun. But then said, no, but clouds are more powerful. So I can worship the clouds, but then the wind is more powerful. So I worship the wind, etc., 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 until he finally said, there has to be something else. Something that's outside the system, outside the natural system, not part of the system. But he explains the whole system from outside. And that is what we call God. That's what the word supernatural, that's what it should mean. It shouldn't mean eerie or, or, or weird or, or, or what you see when you go to a graveyard. Supernatural means above the natural. Not more powerful than the natural, but, but above and outside the natural, not part of natural order. And I think Hazal understood instinctively that because of their um, sensitivity to a world of idolatry and paganism, the difference between Judaism and paganism wasn't that they have a lot of gods and we have one. Because then you could just take 
Avodah You can take paganism and just sort of eliminate all the excess gods. And it will become Judaism by the process of elimination. As today is well known, there was a period in Egyptian history when they shrank down to one god. Pharaoh Achnaton. And, and various people have suggested that maybe that's where the idea of monotheism came to Moshe Rabbeinu. Since I don't think the, the idea of monotheism came to Moshe Rabbeinu from his Egyptian education, uh, I don't think it came to Moshe Rabbeinu. I think he learned it from his father, and from his father, and from Ravina, who discovered it on his own. So the theory doesn't impress me. But also, it's wrong. Because what Egyptian monotheism was is taking all the gods and just eliminating the excess ones and settling in the end on Ra, who was the god of the sun. And the god of the sun is no different than the god of the sun, who is also a god of the moon. He's just the one that's left after you've killed the others. God is not our God. He's not the God of the sun. He's not the principle. He's not the force behind the sun. He's not the force behind the winds. He's not the force behind the sea. He's not God of the sea. He's beyond. He's outside all that. And that's why it's not of Azar. That's why it's not paganism. Because you're not worshipping something which is more or less like you, just a little bit more. To worship a natural force is to is to worship is to is to grant religious status to something which is natural. We call it created. It's part of the natural order, and just as we are part of the natural order, it's part of the natural order, and just as it is part of the natural order, we're part of the natural order. But the essence of Jewish theology is that Ainog Mulvado we worship something who is beyond and outside the natural order same time as he's the ground of the natural order. So the theological proof, precisely because it arouses humanly understandable emotions and reactions, that's why it's deficient. Because the reason why it arouses those human emotions is because we know how to relate to it. I love my father because he's good to me. I love my God because he's even better to me. The difference between my father and God is relative. And making it relative times a hundred, making it relative times a million doesn't change the fact that such a God is merely two or three or a hundred or a hundred thousand or a hundred million times more powerful, more wise, more beneficent than my father. The God of Israel isn't a million times more than your father. The Greek word hard for Chazal to express this, but the Greek word infinite is what I think Chazal were looking at when they said we're not going to eliminate the distance between man and God. We're not going to make God a resident, another resident, another denizen of this world. Now, since we know that what I said in the previous five weeks is true, I went overboard. I said, God is found in man. But, Pashat Pshad in the Torah is that God is here. He does this, He does this, He does this. This is the Beis HaVikdash. He dwells in the Beis HaVikdash in some sense of the word. He speaks to Adam Avinu. He speaks to Moshe Rabbeinu. God is not a medical, physical principle that doesn't bear no relationship to the world. So, the answer is the two things are true. Those are the Medrash. In my core in the beginning of today's Shia were merely designed, it's understood, any read of the Medrash or the Torah knows that God is in the world. So Chazal said, yeah, yeah, that's true, but, but, but not completely. Lo mitachat la'asarat fachim. Not less than ten fachim. 
So there is, in other words, in terms of the metaphor, I'm not explaining it theologically now, but the metaphor says that God does come down to the world. Hashem al God did descend on Hasinai. So he does breach the unbridgeable gap and come closer and closer and closer. But then the Midrash says, but don't think that he goes all the way. There's got to be a distance because if a God would go all the way, so to speak, he wouldn't be God anymore. He wouldn't be the God that we worship anymore. He would be kind of idol. He would become a kind of a pagan God. And therefore, no, never can the gap be eliminated. And this is a very, very important theological point, which I think is correct to always raise the event, to raise after the fact. The, the living experience of Judaism is the closeness to God. And therefore, that which I explained in the opening shroom of the series, that God exists, Kedusha exists, in the human striving and the human actions of, and the human actions to come close to God is I think an explanation of the daily activity of a Oved Hashem of a Jew who worships God who serves God what I've done today is an important break you have to remember it all the time despite the truth of what I said despite the truth of what Kolato Akula says all the time about man and God being together you should realize that to some extent, an important extent, you have to at the same time affirm the infinite gap between man and God, the infinite non-relational nature of man and God, the supernatural existence of God as being beyond and above and outside of nature. Because otherwise, you'll have a very, very rich relationship with God but it won't be God anymore. And this danger is an ever-present one. We seek to enrich our religious experiences, and therefore we turn to this philosophy, or this practice, or this approach to Judaism, and they do in fact enrich, and at some point we're in danger of, in order to make God part of my life, I've made God part of my life. In order to make God in relationship, in order to have a relationship with God, I've made God more or less a thing that is next to me, a tree that I can look at, a friend to whom I can talk, a part of my own part of my own body. Now, how did I avoid that in the two minutes that are left to me? How did I avoid that? How do I avoid that based on what I developed in the first few shiurim, which was in fact an extreme version of saying that God is present in the world? And the answer is the exact same point I made week after week. To say that God is in the world based on the notion of Tzalem Elohim is based on potentiality. In actuality, if you freeze frame the situation, God will not be in the picture. When I daven, when I do tshuva, when I spy to come close to God, I feel the presence of God within me. But if you grab that picture, you take a picture of it, and you look at it, there's no God there. Because the actuality of God is a infinite distance from you, an infinite distance above you. And you're merely human, acting out a comparison to God. But that acting out is the presence of God in the world. That allows me
So yes, to eat my cake and have it too. I admit it. God is never actually in my hands. Chas v'shalom. That would be paganism. That would be a barazah. You can't hold him in your hands. You can hold an idol. You can't hold God in your hands. You can't kiss the stone and say, I've kissed God. And yet, by doing, not by being, but by doing, I claimed, because it's impossible to have a religion which doesn't somehow find God in the world, because then you can worship, but what are you worshiping? So I need both of these two, 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 two foci. God is in the world, so that I can relate to Him, but that He should be Him, He has to be outside the world. And the answer is, what I've tried to explain in Yishyon. God is, as, as an existent being, God is infinitely divorced from the world. And He surrounds it and is the bound and, and, and ground for the world. And to that, you can have a direct relationship with that. But within the world, there is a mirror to God's infinity. To God's perfection, there is a mirror called perfecting. And in that mirror, we find God and we relate to the infinite God. It's not two gods. I don't relate to the imperfect God. There is no imperfect God. When I am imperfect but perfecting myself, when I am limited but trying to transcend myself and succeeding in transcending myself, that is a reflection of the infinite, perfect and transcendental God. And you can have no closer relationship than with what you yourself are. And that bridges the connection, that bridges the infinite gap with the infinite, perfect, and transcendental God. And therefore, Chazal insists that you remember this. You have to just remember it. You don't have to live it. You live closest with God. But remember, you're trying to have a close relationship. This one sentence has to be said without feeling overly self-contradictory. I wish and I will succeed in having a close relationship with an infinitely distant being. I will have an imminent relationship with a totally transcendental God. And I will find commonality. I will... I will find almost identity. I will identify with, I will become one to some extent with he who is wholly other. And only if you can affirm both sides of that sentence can you have a genuine religious experience with a worthy religious object, a worthy religious God. To have a religious experience with a chair is delusion. To claim a relationship with the Holy Other is simply impossible. It's possible to have a religious experience based on who you are with the infinitely Holy Other because man has created the Tzalem Elohim. Man shares with God in a potential sense something which isn't man but yet is within his definition. Ki adam Elohim Thank you, Rikol Tov.